Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Your identity. Who are you? This topic was chosen for me this week by popular vote. Some of their comments go like this. And I got my friend, Archana, from India, to um, read their comments for me. She was just passing through India on her way to the grocery store. She came through where I live and went back to India. And I had her do this for me real quick. So uh, take it away, Archana. Who am I? I have no idea. I know that I treat people well. I know that I like music. I know that my relationship with myself must change. But really, who am I? I don't really know what my personality is. I've walked around with a bag on my head quite often. I'm 55 and I still have no clue. I feel the same way. I don't know who I am and I struggle with this daily. I'm the same at 74. I keep figuring it out only to find the person I am may not be likable. I'm 54 and still don't know. I cut myself away from people that I feel unable to communicate with. I don't know how people see me and I don't know myself. I can't even take a compliment as it's too painful to hear. I'm 53 and I'm always asking myself this question. I've also never really known where I fit into society. I know I'm a wife, a mom and a daughter but I never known how to fit. I've spent my life trying to do or say the right thing, even if I don't believe it myself, just so that I could be accepted. All right. That was so pleasant. I just love hearing her voice. We've talked about the chameleon aspect of borderline personality disorder several times in passing. I usually refer to it as mirroring. 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 But it's the same thing. Why would a person with borderline personality disorder be confused about what their identity is? Well, let's go back to the two distorted core beliefs or the unhealthy foundation perspectives that are borderline personality disorder. You know, if borderline personality disorder were a city, your foundation perspectives would be the city itself. What would everything else be? The symptoms. They would be the suburbs. So, do you live in Philly? Well, Philly itself is borderline personality disorder. Let's say that borderline personality disorder is City Hall. And if you've never been to Philly, if you saw the movie World War Z with Brad Pitt, the opening scene with the zombies 
takes place right there at City Hall. It's featured heavily in that scene. Now, if City Hall is borderline personality disorder itself, your inability to experience intimacy is Warminster. Willow Grove is your fear of being dumped or left or cheated on. Wincoat is your uncontrolled bouts of rage. Ambler is your lack of identity. Elkins Park is jealousy, and so on and so forth. Have I have I represented enough of y'all out there in Philly yet? Well, you're getting the idea. If you live in L.A., you can create the same map in your head. If you're in Boston, you know what to do. If you're in London, the same. Sweden, pick a city and try it out. Australia, pull up a map of uh, Sydney or the city of your choice and do the same. The city's center is borderline personality disorder itself, which is literally what? Your foundation perceptions and perspectives. And all the suburbs are what? The symptoms of borderline personality disorder. Now, just speaking from my experience in Philly, what do I see if I look at a map of the SEPTA train routes or lines in Philly? What I see is that all train routes spread out from Center City, Philly. They all spread out from the heart of Philadelphia. The train is centered in downtown, right in the heart of the city. In fact, whenever I take the train into Philly, I almost always get off at Market East Station, which is literally only a few blocks from City Hall. From there, I can walk to a million different places within the city. Now, if we're looking at the city and all the train lines spreading out from that central point, where do they go? They go to all these suburbs I've just mentioned. Wincote, Ambler, Glenside, Hatboro, Elkins Park, Jenkintown. There, I included some more of you in there. What am I getting at here? What I'm getting at is anytime you're trying to figure out an explanation for a symptom, what should you do? You should be in the habit of trying to trace it back to Center City, to Central Station, because remember, Central Station or Center City is the disorder itself. It's the thing you have to fix in order to eliminate the disorder. It's the one thing that explains it all. All symptoms spread out from it. They're all connected and can be traced back to Central Station in the heart of the city. Why is it beneficial to get into this habit? It's beneficial and necessary, to be perfectly honest, because in order to eliminate the distorted core beliefs, we first have to be able to perceive that they aren't simply an abstract concept, that they're real, and you really are carrying them around inside yourself. These really are beliefs that you're living with, mostly unknown to you. You might know it on a, on a surface level, but convincing you of it is going to take some work. So you have to work to see exactly how they're affecting you, how they're tied into all of these symptoms. If you can't see the relationship between the cause and the symptoms clearly, the cause is never going to be real to you. Instead, it will remain an ethereal, abstract concept. 
and it's really hard to eliminate or change what we can't see clearly. Remember in the past I've said that you don't have a lot of problems, even though it seems like it. You have one problem, which is creating a lot of symptoms. Fix the problem, you fix the symptoms, right? If you destroy the central train station, all the satellite stations become worthless. You can't run a train that doesn't connect to a central point. It is so much easier. And the only practical solution to tackle one thing, instead of overwhelming yourself trying to control a dozen things, which will always come back as long as their cause is never fully addressed. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's take a look at this symptom today that the members of my group blackmailed me into discussing. (laughs) I hope everybody knows I'm just joking. I'm just being playful. I'm happy to discuss this today. So you and I, we're at the train station together of some suburb, and we want to buy a ticket and ride the train into the heart of the city. This suburb train station is called Identity. We want to see how this station connects to the central station down in the city. Now, the interesting thing about Central Station is that it isn't built by bricks. Rather, it's built on an idea, a certainty, in fact. And that certainty is this, the inherent nature of my feelings is that they're totally worthless and shameful. Now, imagine a person, not yourself, but some other person, living with this secret certainty that forms their fundamental concept of the very reality of life. And we're observing this person. What are some natural effects that you'd expect to see in this person's approach to life? Would you expect, for example, such a person to willingly go around Sharing their genuine selves with others? Why not? Because the behavior we've just described is what you expect from people who live with the certainty that there's absolutely nothing naturally shameful about their feelings, right? Right? This is the person you would expect to go around sharing themselves with everybody. They don't mind showing their genuine selves to others because they have no reason to mind But what about the person who lives with the opposite certainty, that their feelings are something to be ashamed about? Do you naturally expect that person to go around openly sharing his or her true self? No, you absolutely do not. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been utterly humiliated before? Utterly humiliated. I know you have. How did it feel? Moving forward, did you make up your mind that you were going to take advantage of any and every opportunity you possibly could to continue being made to feel humiliated in the future? (laughs) You see, shame, shame is intense humiliation. And for people who view their feelings as humiliating, or shameful, 
The natural result of this is that not only do they not make their feelings available to others, but there's another effect. It's even deeper than that. They themselves spend their entire lives denying these feelings from themselves. They subconsciously refuse them. They deny them. They reject that those feelings are a part of them. Think of the moments you've been doing this. If you have borderline personality disorder yourself, try to recall instances when you have done this. Try to tap into those feelings of humiliation and shame, especially over any feelings that you believe reveal weakness or vulnerability. Now, imagine just letting go and revealing those aspects of yourself to your dad or your mom. Just letting them out there. Do you feel that? That is shame and humiliation. And where does it come from? It comes from when you were a child. Think back. You're three or four years old, and you're already catching on real quick that any time you allow your honest feelings to show around your parents, you suffer humiliation for it. Your very own parents' attitudes toward your feelings, every time you allow them out into the open, cause you great humiliation. The way they react and deal with your feelings consistently makes you feel embarrassed and ashamed, not merely for having expressed those feelings. Notice this, not merely for having expressed those feelings, but it goes deeper. Indeed, they make you feel like an idiot for having felt those particular feelings at all. Did you catch that? Not just expressing your feelings. They make you feel like an idiot for having felt what you felt at all. The consistent message you continually keep getting from them is that almost always, whatever you're feeling, that feeling is wrong. Because you're only three or four, you're still learning about how life works. And guess what? One of the first things are that you learn the quickest. Well, like a person who touches a hot stove a couple of times, the first things you learn are how to protect yourself from pain. Why? Because pain hurts. It's a matter of discomfort. As human beings, we quickly learn to avoid anything that is going to cause us discomfort. Is humiliation or shame uncomfortable? Oh, Lordy, yes. It's been my objective here to try to, here, right now, persuade you into tapping into the feeling of humiliation because it's absolutely horrible. It's worse than a bee sting. Worse than stepping on a Lego block. Worse than biting your tongue. Much, much worse. In the third grade, our teacher walked out of the room to take a call or something. And of course, the class began to act up the instant he left the room. 
And if you want to know how intense the shame was that I felt on this occasion, I can still remember this teacher's name 36 years later. And I was only at that school in that town for one year of my life. So it's not as if this is a teacher I continued to see around. Nope, this experience was simply so painfully humiliating for me that I never forgot his name. His name was Mr. Loveless. <laughs> Isn't that appropriate? So Mr. Loveless, he's out of the room, and the boys in my class started tossing their pencils up in the air to see who could get their pencil to go higher without touching the ceiling. I remember at this time that I had an incredible desire for the girls to like me. Not to have a romantic crush on me necessarily, I just wanted to be liked and admired. Instead of feeling liked and admired, I usually felt like I was insufficient compared to everybody else instead. You can probably relate to that feeling. There was a pretty, dark-haired girl who sat right next to me, who I admired very, very much. So, in an effort to show off for her and win her admiration, I began tossing my pencil up into the air, determined to get my pencil to go higher than all the other boys' pencils. On about the third toss, the unthinkable happened. My pencil stuck like an arrow, in the ceiling. I was terrified. I, I had never been in trouble at school before in my entire life, and I was desperate to figure out how to get the pencil down from the ceiling before my teacher returned. I, did, I hated all of that attention directed at me because I felt like a piece of shit, you know? I felt like a turd. This was my underlying belief the borderline personality disorder core beliefs. Here I am, a piece of shit, and now all the attention in the room is directed upon me. And the teacher's going to come any time now. I was desperate. I pleaded with others in the class to help me get it down, and they refused to help me. Some of them even mocked me for being so stupid as to get my pencil stuck up there. The dark-haired girl wouldn't look at me. The teacher came back, and the class, almost in unison, said, Look, Mr. Loveless, Brian stuck his pencil in the ceiling. The humiliation I was already feeling was off the scales. It was just beyond. I wanted to die. I wanted to be anywhere but there. I wanted to wish time to go backwards five minutes and avoid this entire situation. And if this wasn't enough, Mr. Loveless called me to the front of the class. He then questioned me about why I would do something, like throw my pencil up and stick it in the ceiling. In front of the whole class, I told him I was just imitating what everybody else was doing. Again, in unison, the entire class including the dark-haired girl, began to vehemently deny this, and they turned on me full tilt. No, we weren't. Not all of us. I wasn't doing it. Me neither. I started to cry. I couldn't help it. It was, it was just all so overwhelming. Imagine, I'm seven years old, 
I'm seven years old, and I'm being publicly shamed. I had gone from this feeling of exhilaration at a chance to earn the dark-haired girl's admiration, and I had blown it in extraordinary fashion, and the entire class hated me and had turned against me. Now I was being forced to stand before all these people and answer questions while I was crying, crying for Pete's sake, in front of all these people who hated me. When Mr. Lovelace finally allowed me to sit down, it seemed that an eternity had passed. In fact, while I was stuck, standing there being humiliated beyond what any child should be subjected to, especially any child who already lives in a home where he's made to feel humiliation for feeling feelings every single day. I only wished for it to end. This is all I could think. I just wanted it to end. I wanted to die. In the past, I've given you real-life examples of embarrassment, but I've stopped short of giving you the details of true shame that I've experienced. Now you have a real-life true example of a time when I felt such shame that I truly wished I had never been born. Maybe a lot of listeners won't understand what the big deal was with sticking a pencil in the ceiling and being caught. You know, as an adult now, looking back at it, I say, what was the big deal? What was that teacher's problem? That he couldn't just let laugh that off and let it go. But you have to remember, I was in the third grade. You have to understand the circumstances in which this took place. The attention of all my peers directed squarely on me when I, my underlying belief was already that I'm shameful. I'm an embarrassment. I'm a stain on the earth. How the entire situation was my opportunity to win some affection, but it completely turned against me. So I'll ask the question again. Is humiliation uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. Whether you're aware of it or not, whether you have borderline personality disorder or not, rest assured that from your experiences of humiliation in the past, those experiences continue affecting your behavior even now. You've made adjustments to avoid any possibility of that of that feeling ever happening to you again. You continue doing everything you can to avoid any situation whatsoever where humiliation might be repeated. Now back to feelings. People with borderline personality disorder live with this same terror of revealing their feelings, and particularly any feelings which might reveal vulnerability or weakness to others. They view it like my seven-year-old self views being forced to return to the front of the class to be stripped naked and exposed and beaten down in front of all of those mean people. What is your identity? When we talk about your identity, we're really only talking about your feelings. What makes up an identity? Our feelings do. Yes, our experiences and thoughts are involved too, but if you really want to get to the heart of it, it's not just our experiences, is it? 
Rather, it's our feelings toward those experiences. How our experiences have made us feel. Right? So it's not just the experience. It's our feelings toward the experience. Because what determines if an experience is positive or negative, good or bad? Isn't it just our feelings toward the experience? So if, when it comes to your feelings, you are consistently made to feel like I did, not for sticking a pencil in the ceiling, but just for feeling things, do you move forward in life now openly sharing your real identity, that is, your true, vulnerable self, openly? You know, a person who is unwilling to reveal their true emotions cannot in any way be revealing their true identity at the same time. You can't have one without the other. No, you've been burned so many times for doing this that you have learned very quickly that in order to avoid intense discomfort and pain, your only choice is to bury that part of yourself. Pretend it don't exist. Deny it from others and from yourself. You've been made to believe it is an inherently shameful, humiliating part of yourself. Do you see now the why? Why you have trouble knowing who you are or of knowing what your natural identity is? Because your identity is tied up with your deepest, most authentic feelings. And what is the certainty that you've been living with since you were three or four years old? That this part of you is humiliating. It's a part of you that simply should not exist. There's something wrong with you. For all your life, you have been doing your very best to pretend that part of yourself away, just to be able to get about in life. Like my child self in that classroom, you just want to be likable. Unfortunately, one of your most powerful and buried beliefs is that in order to be likable, you must never allow people to see the real you. You are convinced that the real you is by nature unlikable, unlovable. Notice the nuance. I did not say that you're convinced the real you is unliked and unloved. I said that the real you is by nature unlikable, unlovable. Important nuance. So what have we done here? We've ridden the train from this particular suburban station, which is identity, down to Center City. We've made the connection for how Central Station, the fundamental cause of borderline personality disorder, explains this one particular symptom. You can do this with every symptom of borderline personality disorder, and this is proof positive that my explanations for borderline personality disorder are complete and simply explain the reality, and that any information that contradicts my explanations is not worth your time. I'm not saying that all information is not worth your time. I'm simply saying that any information that is contradicting the facts that I lay out here is not worth your time. If they agree with the facts I'm laying out here, then that any information 
as long as it's accurate, is good information. Because the explanation for all of these things must harmonize, which my explanations do. An explanation for one aspect of the disorder cannot ever contradict an explanation for another aspect of the disorder, because that is proof positive that the very foundation upon which the explanation is built is false. Now that we've thoroughly discussed the why, I don't want to leave you without telling you this. Many people who talk about borderline personality disorder say a multitude of conflicting things on the subject. For example, some say that you now live with no identity of your own. Well, this is a lie. The truth is that your identity is perfectly intact. It didn't go anywhere. The only thing that's happening The reason you're unable to recognize what your natural identity is is because you, yourself, are denying it. You are refusing to accept it. Remember, you started this as a child. Once you got the hang of it, you you turned into an expert. You're an expert identity denier. You're so good at this that maybe even listen to this right now, you can't see how you're doing it, but you are doing it. Your identity is there and you're refusing it. Ultimately, when we talk about your genuine identity, you don't get to pick. In other words, there's no going back and being reborn with an entirely different personality or identity. So what's the solution? Well, as with all things involving borderline personality disorder, the real solution, the ultimate solution, is to eliminate the two distorted core beliefs or fundamental perceptions that form the foundation of the entire disorder. This is your primary focus and objective, or at least it should be. Remember, by doing this, you won't have to go about to every single satellite suburban train station, fixing every single one of them individually. Mm -mm. By fixing this one thing, all of those other things, every symptom of borderline personality disorder will vanish or be replaced with something healthy. But in the meantime, is there anything more immediate you can do? Yes. You must practice catching yourself when your authentic self surfaces, and then make a conscious effort to embrace it rather than reject it. What are you going to feel when you begin doing this? Well, you're going to feel terribly uncomfortable. Do it anyway. Remember, this is not going to come naturally to you because you have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of practice viewing this part of yourself as humiliating, and we know how powerful the desire to avoid that feeling is. And just as many years of practice denying that this part of you even exists. In fact, when you feel uncomfortable and restless and dirty, this may be your cue to look inward honestly, to try to identify if this is not simply The real you coming up for air. That's your cue. 
when you feel repugnance and and filthy and about something about yourself. That might be the thing that you want to grab a hold of with your arms and hold on to tight until you can analyze it for a while, because that might be you, not be anything filthy about it. Then the next challenge will be making a conscious effort not to push it away, but to let it remain for a while, turn it over in your hands a bit, and try to accept it as yours, scars and all. One indicator of when your genuine identity or personality is near the surface is any time you feel vulnerable or nervous or insecure. See, these are parts of yourself that you try to deny, aren't they? When you're feeling insecure, don't you try to talk yourself out of feeling insecure? Don't do that. Instead, study it. And ask yourself honestly, if you aren't trying to convince yourself not to be insecure because you're ashamed of what it says about your authentic identity. Is there anything else I can recommend to help you in this work? Yes, I can tell you that when you're worn out or tired or sick or sleepy, your real self will generally be close to the surface. Your guard comes down, you see, because you simply don't have the energy to maintain control over the denial. For example, when you are waking up in those first few minutes while you're coming out of sleep, your authentic self would generally be near the surface. This happens because your mind hasn't had time to orient itself and take conscious control to immediately push this shameful part of you aside and deny its existence. If you're mindful of this, you'll be able to recognize it, keep it around for a while, and actually catch yourself when you go to reject it. Another useful exercise is to try to remember back to the earliest parts of your childhood and to tap in to the feelings of who you were back then. This is actually the best exercise of them all because whoever you were then at three and four and five, that's who you still are, whether you realize this or not. This goes for all people, not just you. Ain't that interesting? Even the most intimidating CEO of the most prestigious Fortune 500 company, at 50, 60, or 70 years old, is really only a more experienced version of whoever he was when he was five. At his gooey center, he's still that little boy. This is a fun exercise and one that I, I play often. If I really want to understand a person, I try to ask questions about their childhood. If I can get an idea of what type of child they were at four or five, then I can figure out the adult pretty well. For you, this will be such a great exercise because at four and five, and maybe even a little later, you had not yet gotten totally efficient at closing off and denying your feelings and authentic identity. You were still in the process of putting this into full practice. So spending time going back in your mind to who you were then and reliving those feelings and your natural tendencies, your tapping into that personality, this is who you still are. It's still in there. As your recovery from borderline personality disorder progresses, 
that little girl or that little boy is going to gradually be allowed to the surface and into the world, and you will gradually stop denying her or him. Eventually, you're going to give up acting and imitating others altogether, and you will just be you all of the time. Another thing that will happen is that this authentic part of yourself will be allowed to mature. Until now, because you've spent your entire life suppressing it, your emotional self has not been able to interact with the world and mature. Maturing can't happen without interaction with life. And see, you've not allowed your authentic self to interact with life because you've been militant about hiding it and not letting it out. You, can't, you cannot suffer that pain. Now, as you're going through recovery, your authentic self will begin to interact with life. Some experiences will be uncomfortable. Some will be rewarding. And the nature of recovery is to learn to view all these experiences as natural and as not at all the fault of your feelings or of your personality or your identity. They're instead the natural interactions that represent real life. It is life, not you. There's nothing inherently wrong with you, and there never was. When I talk about maturity, think about a person who flies off the handle and gets disproportionately angry because she ordered a soup in a restaurant and it comes to her table too cold, and she just, fl- she just flies off the handle. Now imagine another woman who has the same experience, and she very calmly and politely mentions to the waitress that the soup is cold. Could she please replace it with soup that's hot? What was the difference? The first person's emotional identity is immature. She's taken the cold soup as a personal affront. She feels like she's been attacked, all because somebody brought her a bowl of cold soup. And the other woman? She is calm because she realizes that this is just real life. This is just the nature of a restaurant serving hundreds, possibly thousands of bowls of soup every single week. There are bound to be times when the soup gets cold before it's delivered to the table. Absolutely nothing whatsoever personal about it. She has no reason to be upset because she has a mature emotional foundation, a mature understanding of real life. And that, my friends, is our conversation for this week about identity and real self. You don't have to go looking for yourself or create an identity. You've already spent a lifetime attempting that. All you have to do is stop rejecting the person you already are, but that you are ashamed of. And you can do this. It's not impossible, nor is it really that difficult once you understand the causes at play and you do the admittedly uncomfortable work of undoing a lifelong habit. I hope I've given you some real insights in this week's show. I've written this particular episode with the intention that it be an episode that can be listened to more than once, with new insights hopefully occurring with each new listen. Finally, I want to thank any of you who have ever supported my overall body of work with donations. This support has allowed me to expand my efforts and continue to focus ever more on this work exclusively. If you're somebody who enjoys what I'm doing 
and you find that it's making your life better, please consider visiting thelastsymptom.com and supporting my work according to your means and genuine desire. I thank you very much. Also, if you think that by talking to me personally you could gain some useful insights, you can schedule that appointment right from thelastsymptom.com itself. Folks, I hope you have the best week of all time and that all of the weeks of all the history of the earth will pale in comparison. Remember to be kinder and more patient with yourself than anybody else will be, while at the same time holding yourself to concrete, short-term, and long-term expectations. When you fail, put an arm around yourself and remind yourself that this is to be expected and that the important thing is not the failure, but rather it's to learn from the failure, get right back up, dust yourself off, and keep moving. This is Brian Barnett signing off. As always, thanks for listening. I'm going to end by allowing Fred Rogers to tell us one last story. Take care, everybody. I I just had a letter the other day from this woman who said, 14 years ago, I had a baby who was 16 months old. And I had that baby in the back seat of the car. And I was in such a terrible depression. I I didn't even know that I had put him back there. And she said, I saw this, I was driving along, and I saw this truck coming, and I thought, I'm just going to end it all. I'm just going to go straight into the truck. And I, because she, she was desperate. And she said, I started turning to the left, And all of a sudden, I heard this little voice singing, It's a beautiful day in this name. And she said, I veered my car to the right, and I thought of life and love, and I got some help psychologically. And now it's 14 years later, and I just need to thank you. Well, you know, to, to hear that your work has, can be used in such wonderful ways is, uh, as I say, a great blessing.